Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. It is my delight to bring to the Morning Glory Project Claire Hennessy. British-born, Claire is an award-winning storyteller and author, and she's the producer and podcaster of The Bunker's Brit, and she is indeed both of those things. Claire reconnected with her first boyfriend after not seeing him for 30 years, uprooted her entire life in England, and took her two kids to live in California to marry him. She has written a humorous memoir about her journey and is hoping to find an agent before she's too old to go on book tour. Claire recently, and I'll put this in air quotes, came out (laughs) as a comedic storyteller performing funny, true, and often embarrassing stories around the San Francisco Bay Area. She started an online storytelling show at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and co-produces Six Feet Apart Productions with longtime successful comedian Regina Stoops. Together with her husband, Mark, they have produced over 40 online live storytelling shows. To top it off, Claire is the Morning Glory Project's very first countess. We only hope that she can let us know if we can borrow her tiara. (laughs) So Claire Hennessy, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm glad to have you here. Hi, Betsy. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. (laughs) Well, now, Claire, I met you a few years ago, and I was instantly struck because you're a delight and warm, not only funny, which of course is, you know, part of what we'll talk about, but also warm hearted and welcoming and just kind and beautiful. So I was pleased to meet you. And I've subsequently learned about you that you are indeed a determined kind of person, but perhaps different than some of our other Morning Glory Project guests. What I want to talk with you about is sort of this determination to follow your dreams. That's what really strikes me about you. Tell me about that. It seems like your dreams are romantic and comedic and also just fun. Tell me where you get that. Where, how did you become such a good advocate for yourself? I suppose it's my mum. She has always been amazing and she's always done stuff. Um, she'd been very adventurous. She never stopped doing it, even though she was rubbish at things like she did skiing and windsurfing and all these sort of things and was absolutely terrible at all of them. And, <laughs> and she, did fine. she just laughed and carried on to the next thing. And she, she just tried stuff. So I never felt frightened to do anything. Because she, yeah. when she was 50, she got her private pilot's license and learned how to fly, you know, single aircraft planes, um, which was 
little bit terrifying to have your mum. I thought, I wish she would just sit at home knitting like other mums. But, you know, off she was, off she was flying in the aeroplanes. And we, we'd go up with her and she said, oh, just keep an eye out for other planes, will you? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, so it sounds like I hadn't thought of it this way until you just said it. You said, you know, she was she was rubbish at quite a few things, as you'd say it in, in Brit speak. But it sounds like it was okay to try and fail. Well, yes. I mean, sometimes she came back from skiing, which, which she was particularly bad at. And she we all bruised quite easily in my family. And she was black and blue. It's like someone had systematically beaten her up. And so it was, and she was utterly terrified the whole time. And she said it was the most horrific experience. But, you know, she wouldn't do it again. But she did. But she was it. glad she did it. Yeah. I just know that, you know, with my kids, I was kind of similar because I just things like driving. I love driving. And when both my kids learned to drive, they they also both really love it. And they would go off and just drive in San Francisco or drive to Sacramento. I think the first week that my son got his license, he was off to Sacramento. And everybody else around it, all their friends would go, oh, I can't drive into San Francisco. That's too scary. And it's like, why is it scary? Just do it. You know, some of my friends now at the age of, you know, grand old age that I am, still don't drive into San Francisco because they find it too scary. And I'm like, kind of shocked. Because you, you sort of curtail your own life by doing that. Well, that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to a workshop I attended. Uh, Cheryl Strayed, the author of Wild, was the teacher. Oh, I love that, yeah. She's lovely. and But she said something that always stuck with me, which is a little bit like a, sort of a cousin of what you're talking about. She said that you have to embrace mediocrity sometimes. And at first I thought, what? I don't want to be mediocre at things. And she, she said, no, no, no. It doesn't mean that you're going to end up there. It just means that you have to be willing to be kind of mediocre at something. Try it. You're saying even more than that. You're saying, you know, so what if you're crap at it? <laughs> you know, what if you can't do it? So you try it. And it sounds to me like you've rolled some big dice in your life. Certainly pursuing a boyfriend that you hadn't seen for 30 years and relocating to the US. So tell us a little bit about your love story. Yeah, that was quite a thing, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it could be a little bit. I think what it is also, I have massive denial. So <laughs> I don't think things through very clearly. You know, I don't think of all, when I did think things through, but not properly. You don't obsess about the negative possibilities. No, I, a whole family are quite positive. You know, we, we, we're just born positive, I think. And my mum's been very positive and my sisters are and... Um, so when I, I just emailed him one night when I was a little bit pissed coming back from the pub one Friday night and. Well, no, I, wait, let, let me do an American translation. You didn't mean you were a little bit pissed like you're mad. You meant like you were a little tipsy. Yes. yes I had a few glasses to, of wine. All right. In the, you know, alcoholic spectacles. I thought it was a really sensible, quite normal thing to do to email a boyfriend you hadn't seen for 30 years. We call that drunk dialing, you know. Yes. So, um, <laughs> I did that and then was press the send button, utterly terrible, what have I done? But the only reason I sort of did it was because he was living in America when I was in England. I thought, oh, there's no chance. It, you know, he's so far away, no chance of us meeting up. I, I don't know whether that, I don't know quite why that was a thing, but, you know, it just felt such a cliche to email old boyfriends, you know. Well, it felt safe too. There wasn't any real risk involved. Yes. <laughs> Famous last words though, because here <laughs> I am. <laughs> and, then, and then we sort of did a transatlantic courtship Um traveling across the back and forth, you know, because he's in California, like the furthest point away from England. Um, and then we both got kids. So that was a challenging time. Um, and then blending families, which was the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. 
did it very badly and <laughs> didn't didn't think that through either. Um, but there we go. But it all worked out in the end. So you were divorced, I'm gathering. Yes. He was unencumbered for whatever mechanism that required. Not quite, unfortunately. <laughs> well, so he was soon to be. <laughs> and it sounds like you, you took this risk, you know, once you connected, what, what told you that this was the right move? Because my guess is you didn't change countries for several times for several different guys. This was a specific thing. Yes. It did feel like we had had a previous life agreement. I'm very quite spiritual. I believe in previous lives and things like that. And there was a lot about it that was quite spiritual about our meeting, meeting of minds and things and lots of things that felt preordained. And it was just the whole thing was a bit like that, but it still was a really difficult decision. I didn't, I'm really close to my family. I've got, you know, say, two sisters, my mom and my dad, um, and so many friends. And I love England. I never, I wasn't one of those people who hated England and wanted to go, which a lot of people do because of the weather. I mean, it was awful, the weather, but I still loved England. I love all, and I still do love England. So it was a massive wrench to leave mm. and to take my kids away because their dad obviously still lives in England. And my my two kids are the only grandkids because neither of my sisters have had kids. So you know, it was awful for my mum to have her grandkids moved away. So there were so many things that were stopping me going. And I felt like a tug of war between my family one side and my husband-to-be on the other. But, um, you know, it was difficult. The whole thing was difficult. And that was- <laughs> well, you know, and I think about that, though, and I think, you know, every major decision has its casualties, right? Yes. Every every time we choose one, even if it's a grand thing, we're giving something else up. Every time we walk down one path, we're giving up a different one. Yes. Yes. And it sounds as though yes, you're you're, you're not somebody who's going to sit on a paper and pencil and do the pros and cons and all of that. You're somebody who follows your heart more. But it sounds as though even with those costs, the the benefit was love. Yes. Yes, definitely. I had a bit of a spiritual awakening in England and I asked for rapid spiritual growth because I thought that would be good. <laughs> I very definitely got rapid spiritual growth. Where do we order that, Claire? <laughs> is, that, is that the uh, rapid spiritual growth department on Amazon? Do we? <laughs> don't, don't click that button. <laughs> what you want to ask for is slow, easy, effortless, lovely spiritual growth. Oh, okay. So that's a different department. That's a different box to check. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a whole conversation we don't need that day. But yeah, don't do the rapid spiritual growth thing. That was stupid. <laughs> well, you say that. Of course, we're we're being tongue in cheek here, but but it sounds like it came with great cost, but it came with great reward as well. Yeah, I have to say now I have the most amazing life. I mean, it's absolutely fabulous. I feel so fortunate. I have you know, really loving, gorgeous husband. I have a beautiful house. I have, live in California, apart from the raging fires and drought, it's gorgeous. And, um, you know, my kids, there's so much opportunity for my kids here as well. They're both doing, you know, pretty well. And um, I just wish I could go home more often. You know, I wish I could have half my life here and half my life in England because I do miss my family a lot. So this led then to another aspect. When I first met you, you then were saying that you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. That was sort of the goal because clearly you're obviously a fun and funny person. You've always been that. 
but there was a change in that direction. Can you can you tell me about that? Because now you, you don't say that you you say that you came out as a comedic storyteller, not as a stand up comic. Can you tell me first of all about pursuing that dream and, and tell us the difference? Well, I've always loved comedy, and and particularly in England, we we have a certain type of comedian that I just loved, and I've always really you know enjoyed going to see them live and things like that. Just love it, and um, the. I just always wanted to be a comedian, and but the it's it's very British thing not to say that you are good at something. Um, there's a phrase like the importance of not being earnest, um, and so in England, if you if you say that you know if you're overly sincere about yourself or take yourself too seriously or say that you're really good at something, it's really bad. Then everyone will either shun you or they'll take the They'll tease you or they'll say, what on earth do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So coming out, think, right, I'm going to be a comedian. That felt like, who do you think you are? Because that means you're saying that you're funny. And it was like, oh, God, it was and how, and how dare you? Yes, how very dare you? So that was awful. Even though everyone's always told me I'm really funny, I just thought, oh, that's me, that's me saying I'm funny, which is just embarrassing. So then um, I think, well, how do I do that? So then I was looking at comedy clubs in San Francisco and there's a really, you know, robust, well, pre the pandemic, robust comedy um, community in San Francisco. Um, so I was looking into all that. And then luckily I went to a, um, a workshop with somebody who was, who was, a com- who is a comedian and then also is a storyteller. And she was describing in America what it takes to be a comedian. You have to go to, a comedy club every single week for a whole year. And maybe at the end of that year, you would get a five minute slot. And during that five minute slot, you have to tell a joke or a punchline literally every 15 seconds. Your ultimate goal, if you succeed at this, is to possibly pinnacle would be a late, late chat show host. And I looked at all that and thought, I don't want any of that. (laughs) So your fantasy about being a comedian was different than the reality here. Yes, it was, it was a, like a British comedian, which is different. And it's people ask me to explain, and it's very difficult to explain, but we don't have those late, late chat show hosts. We have just a comedy, just comedians on TV and they do one people shows. And it's more of a story type thing and, and observation and little things about life and things like that in a very British way. Mm-hmm. That's more what I wanted, you know, to stand in Wembley Stadium and have everyone cheer at me. <laughs> well, who doesn't want that? <laughs> um, but so then I luckily, she said, well, um, storytelling is different from that. And so then I got into storytelling because that's what I do anyway. And then it was just genius because when you go to storytelling, it's you don't have to be funny. In fact, a lot of stories are not funny. So if you are funny, people are really pleasantly surprised. <laughs> so so when you're thinking of these, you're th- I'm thinking of things like the moth and the marsh and different kinds of storytelling forums where people get up and sometimes they're telling personal tragedy stories. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're heartwarming or heartbreaking for that matter. So it sounds like that was more your field. So here's what's interesting about this story to me, Claire. You start off with one dream that's kind of almost a fantasy dream, but you learn some things and you adjust your dream Yes, in the process only to discover now what you've learned. So I've listened to the Bonkers Brit. It's delightful. By the way, if somebody just wants, what, 30 minutes of silly <laughs> and and truly bonkers and, and just delight, it's it's fun. But 
also what what I'm kind of coming up with here is on one hand, yes, you're pursuing your dreams, but you're also totally willing to amend or, or alter them to get further along if that's what it takes. Yes, I think you have to. I mean, I, I didn't have a particularly... Why do you have a clear idea? If I had been in England, I still would have been embarrassed to do it. But um, somehow being in America gave me the freedom to reinvent myself a little bit. And because I've got this charming British accent, I thought, well, I've got a massive advantage from day one because people... Don't tell me to shut up over here. They just want me to carry on talking, even if I was just reading the phone book. <laughs> so that's a massive well, it's novelty. It's a novelty, yes. And I, I often wonder if I went to England, would my accent be a novelty there? <laughs> you know, Actually, not as much. Not in the not way. as much. Not in the so so in in America, we tend to. Uh, revere those who, with different accents from all over the world. We put them in our TV commercials and yes. <laughs> have them host our programs and all of that. So, so, so I wouldn't have the same advantage. No, I think Brits are a bit snobby actually in general about things like that. So that doesn't work the same way, unfortunately, for you guys. But we do revere you in lots of other ways. Um, your, you know, the work ethic and how you you're so positive with things and you just get on and and, and you are very. I think Americans are very good, probably because of how it all started with the pioneer days, you just get out there and work and do it and, and go for your dreams. Whereas sometimes in Britain, we can hold ourselves back purely for that same reason, like how very dare you mm. and who do you think you are, that sort of thing. Well, I, ha- I have to, I do have to tell you, I, I come from a, a, a who do you think you are family. Mm. So, so it, it's not unique to Brit, but I think that you're saying it's more culturally <laughs> And so it, it, here we say, don't get too big for your britches. And who do you think you are? Those kinds of things. So I think, I don't know if that's uniquely British at all. I, I think that lots of people suffer under that, you know, how dare I, who do I think I am? You know, I don't want to be too braggy or too bold or too whatever. And so it's interesting that you had that feeling, but nonetheless overcame it. So, so you kind of, you decided that you want to be a storyteller. And my understanding is that you've recently left your nine to five kind of job. Tell, tell me a bit about that transition. I worked for an event management company, um, which was fun sometimes and boring other times, like most jobs are. They're never all fun all the time, are they? And then, but I've been for a few years now, funny, it, it wasn't in line with my passion. <laughs> never really was. Um, but it was a job and I just found it was a bit grueling and I, it, it wasn't feeding me creatively. And I went back to England for a month because my mother wasn't very well. Um, and I spent a month there. It was lovely being back. And then when I came back again, I thought I, and I've been on furlough for a lot of the year, obviously because of COVID pandemic events just got hit so badly. Right. I came back and I thought, I can't do it anymore. I just can't go back. It felt like jumping on the hamster wheel and just running around in circles, not achieving anything. It wasn't helping the world in large. And, you know, after the pandemic, it just, I think it gave everyone a bit of a pause. What are we all doing? What's happening to our planet? What's happening to ourselves? I mean, I do have quite a strong spiritual practice, so I was trying to better myself anyway. But it just felt for the planet, you know, loads of stupid corporate events. What's the point? I just didn't see the point of it all. Um, and I didn't want to do it anymore. So, and I because I started Six Feet Apart Productions with Regina, and obviously my husband, fantastic husband, Mark, has just made it such a difference. That just fulfilled me creatively so much. And I didn't know before the pandemic that much about the world of storytelling. I didn't know it was such a huge, huge world and so rich and so talented. 
Um, and because of the pandemic, it all opened up virtually. And so people I would never have met or known otherwise, now they're like my best friends. <laughs> I'm doing a, a show with, um, you know, we're co-creating with Better Said Than Done and doing a, you know, a root show and things like that. And, and these people now I talk to almost on a daily basis. And, and there's this massive world that was just underground, if you like, because nobody knows about it unless you happen to be a storyteller. Hmm. And so producing that and getting that out into the world has now become my mission a little bit. Well, you know, it, it does seem also, there, there's a quote, it's been attributed to a number of different folks, but I actually heard Barbara Streisand, of all people, say it. And she said, at the moment of commitment, the universe conspires to support you. And it seems like you're kind of declaring, I want to do this, also then puts out into the world and draws to you other people that do this. Yes. So you, we create our own reality by by stating, you know, by being as big bigger than our britches, so to speak, or being earnest about our commitment. It sounds like you kind of by saying that, by committing to it, by by articulating out of the world and by taking some steps in that direction, then that's what seems to have come to you. Yeah, I definitely believe in that. I think I believe in, you know, you create your own reality and law of attraction and all those sort of things. And I spend quite a bit of time and I have spent quite a bit of time in my life um, looking into that, you know, into quantum physics and all these sort of things. I spent a lot of time studying the people who know much more than I do, who are much wiser than I am, and, and trying to make my life as fantastic as possible. And I've done a pretty good job because it's bloody marvellous. Mm. But there's lots of other stuff I want to do. And, and I do think that the universe will support anybody. You just have to take a step to show that you really mean it and that you're not just saying it. So I do think you have to take some stumbling steps, like little babies do when they start to walk. And, and just start, like, if you want to get a new job, just apply for some. It doesn't even matter if you get half of them. Just send out a whole load of things to everybody because then the universe – and then try and write it down and decide what you want. And then the universe sees, oh, right, you really mean it. You want to do it. Okay, then we'll help you. We'll help you because I think – I do believe asking it is given. You just have to ask and then your angels and, you know, source or whatever you want to call it will – it does conspire to help you. Hmm. Well, I'm wondering – about you're such an up optimistic delightful person but i'm wondering about those moments when it's hard the yeah. moments when when it when something hits or either it's a, a disappointment or a doubt or a discouragement or something what do you do in those moments what are those like what ha causes them and and how do you get through that well, I did think just recently, I can tell you what I'm doing at the moment to get through it. Um, like with Six Feet Apart, I think we've been told we're the best show on on the internet at the moment. We have most professional, looks fantastic, almost looks like a TV show. And everybody comes on it are just so complimentary, which is lovely. Um, but we're not making a lot of money, <laughs> I have to say. Um, it's not a financially rewarding um, thing at the moment. And we're not reaching the audience that I would like to reach. And then I was watching a, a chat show, it was a British chat show, and one of the guests came on, who was a really famous actor, and I think he'd got Academy Award and things like that, and he'd spent a number of years, can't remember how many, maybe 10, trying to get this film made that he was really passionate about and came up against brick walls the whole time, and he just got it made. And the, the chat show host asked him, and he said, you know, what made you carry on? He said, well, in this business, tenacity is what you have to have. And just keep going at it. And that really struck home to me that just be tenacious and do what you love and carry on anyway, even though it doesn't 
actually look like what you want it to look like quite just keep going if that's what you love so that's what I'm doing because I do love producing the shows I almost love that more than I love telling stories um I love highlighting other people who are so much better than I am at this well you you and I are sisters under the skin in that way I it's it's true of the morning glory project it is not profitable (laughs) but but it's meaningful to me and and it feeds a little thing that I didn't even know was hungry. Yes. And my husband once said to me at one point, he said, oh, I've got a feeling that Six Feet Apart might get bought out by somebody. And although it sounded lovely and un- and probably not true, I thought, oh, actually, I don't want it to get bought out if I don't then have to work on it anymore because I really want to work at Six Feet Apart. I love doing it. I would hate to just get a whole load of money and then have to go and do something else because that's what I want to do. So I thought, well, that's quite interesting. That that, that made me realise that I was on the right path for me at this particular point in life. Well, and, and whether or not it becomes profitable, it still is meaningful while you're doing it, as opposed to what you were saying about your former job, which is it didn't have meaning for you. It was kind of against your values. You were earning money at it, but it was kind of eating at you. Yes, absolutely. I totally, that's a perfect way of saying it. Now, I mean, of course, you know, people have to eat. So sometimes we have to make compromises to pay the mortgage and put food on the table and those kinds of things. I understand that. But when you have options and when you can make decisions in this way, it's, it's, it does make sense to look at what does feed your soul along the way too. Whether it can be done instead of a job or alongside of it. I mean, I did it alongside for most of the you know, a year and a half right and then very luckily my husband is very good at manifesting money much better than I am at manifesting money <laughs> so he said I just manifested a bit you can give up you know so it's like of oh, course and he's such a supportive husband that I'm very lucky on that on that score so um and I know not everyone can do that but you can do these sort of things at the same time as other things um exactly you know most of the storytellers I mean there are so many professional storytellers but there are also so many who've got regular normal jobs as carpenters or you know, nurses or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and they're just telling stories on as well. So you, you can do, you know, everything if you want to. Well, I find that's true with being a writer, that you do other things alongside. And some people have a full-time job and they write a little bit on the side. And some people have a whole bunch, like what I do, it's a patchwork of lots of different things that, that feed my soul and let me also write the stories as well. Well, what is next for you, Claire? Uh, well, just more of the same, actually, and trying to get more creative. I'm really going to push um, six feet apart. Maybe look at, um, I've been mini it for ages, all the Patreon aspect of it. Um, I want to, I had a little pause in the bonkers brick because it was quite hard work to, <laughs> I love chatting to people. It's the editing of the chat that takes the time. The bit that isn't quite so glamorous in the um, <laughs> in the creative process. There's always horrible aspects to any job, isn't it? Um, the invisible stuff. I know, and it takes hours to you know, and I get a bit OCD about the coughs and the ums and the ahs. So it takes me a long time to edit them. So I had a short break in December and I've recorded about five or six different podcasts and then I haven't edited them. <laughs> that is something I really have to get back to doing. So that's that, so furthering the bonkers Brit. I've got to get my book edited enough and send it out to more agents, do a sodding book proposal, which I, is the bit I hate doing. That's the cleaning the loo aspect of my book. Um, <laughs> and then and then we keep going with Six Feet Apart, which is just the most fun. I love Six Feet Apart. Oh, fun. Well, if folks want to find out about Six Feet Apart Productions, they can go to SFAP, so Six Feet Apart 
sfapproductionsshows.com, sfapshows.com. You can find The Bunkers Brit wherever you subscribe to your podcasts, I'm sure. And Claire Hennessy, you are a delight, and I'm so pleased to talk with you, and I wish you every kind of joy and success, the same kind of joy that you bring in every conversation. Oh, Betsy, you're so lovely, and thank you so much. I think you're doing an amazing job of bringing all these fabulous people into the light a bit more. My conversation with Claire Hennessy today may feel different than some of my other conversations on the Morning Glory Project, because many times we're talking about folks that have overcome hardship or difficulty or tragedy or loss. But determination comes in a lot of forms, and sometimes it's about pursuing what delights us. So it delighted me to have this conversation with Claire. I was struck by a few things in her in her conversation. One is when she described her mom being adventuresome, but being, as she said, rubbish at a bunch of those things. And that somehow that stumbling and bumbling was a made okay for her. It's, it's a theme that's come up quite a few times in other conversations, which is how perfectionism is the enemy of tenacity. That, or, or of even starting something, much less being tenacious at it. How many things might you, might I, have stopped ourselves from because we were afraid we wouldn't do it perfectly? That permission to be rubbish at it, <laughs> to try and fail, to stumble and bumble, and to stumble, like Claire said, as a baby would when they're first starting, to have those first stumbly steps. I think that one of the things that I've noticed as I age is that sometimes starting a new venture, I measure my capability at starting something brand new against something that I've been doing for a long time and have grown good at. Instead of saying, oh, wait a minute, I didn't start good at that. I had to begin that. I had to learn that. I had to fail some. I had to take some classes or get some coaching or correct some errors and learn it along the way. So we have to use a different yardstick to measure our success on new ventures, to take those stumbly, bumbly baby steps, to let ourselves be rubbish for a little bit, and to keep at it to find our inner tenacity. And indeed, like Claire, to find the things that feed our souls. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. It's always my joy to have you, and I hope that wherever you are, that you are finding your own path to feeding your soul, and that in so doing, you're finding your way to bloom. <laughs>